This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. Now, you've probably heard of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Touted as China's Marshall Plan, the BRI is a broad movement of global economic investment to build new trade routes between China and the rest of the world, creating its own interdependent markets in the process. And it's big. Back in 2017, President Xi Jinping pledged over $124 billion to the BRI. But for most of us, it does seem like an abstract economic development project, something that's happening in Asia and with little impact for us at home. But where is China looking to expand its global influence and why? Is it really encouraging development overseas or just greater exploitation and economic dependency? To discuss all of this and explain the specifics of the initiative, I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests. Eric Ollander is the co-founder and managing editor of the China Africa Project, a non-partisan media initiative exploring China's engagement in Africa. Hello, Eric. Where are you calling us from today? I'm calling you from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, here in Southeast Asia. Fantastic. And Raffaello Pantucci is a senior associate fellow at the defense and security think tanks RUSI and RSIS. He is also the co-author of Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire. Hello, Raffaello. Hello. Where are you calling us from? I'm calling from Singapore. Fantastic. So, Eric, let's start with the basics then. Different names like the Silk Road Economic Belt and One Belt, One Road all get bandied around when we're talking about these development projects. So what exactly is the BRI and how does it work? Well, that's not an easy question to answer simply because the BRI in many respects is like a Rorschach test where you can see anything you want into it. In fact, a lot of people misunderstand what it is. There is no department of the Belt and Road in Beijing where they've got a plan and you can review the plan and it's updated every year. This thing is a very organic policy process that is done intentionally that way so that it can adapt to changing circumstances. So the BRI on one hand is One Belt, One Road. So this is a trade network that we've been hearing about. There's the Maritime Silk Road, which is building ports around the world. There's the Digital Silk Road, which we've heard about in terms of space and undersea cables. There's the Health Silk Road, which is also this initiative that is bringing vaccines and setting up health infrastructure around the world. So it operates at many different levels. It's very, very dynamic and flexible in the sense that it can be whatever you want it to be. And in many ways, this makes it hard to define, but it also affords Chinese policymakers with the utmost flexibility to adapt to whatever the circumstances are in different parts of the world. Hmm. Now, 15 different Chinese government ministries and many banks have stakes in these different projects. So can we say that it's one specific united strategy? And if so, who's driving it? It's more of a vision than I would say a cohesive strategy. So basically, President Xi Jinping and the, the senior leadership have set out what they think the Belt and Road should be. 
and then others interpret that. And again, there's not a cohesiveness. And a lot of, one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make is assigning far too much strategy and cohesiveness to the Belt and Road than there actually is. It's a far more chaotic process. So yes, all of these ministries, all of these banks, private enterprise, lots of different stakeholders are involved, but each has their own agenda. So there's a lot more competition and chaos inside the Belt and Road process than I think a lot of outsiders uh, would assume. So I was just going to say, I think I, I think one of the uh, I, I agree with uh, with Eric's sort of characterization, and I think in some ways uh, there is no central ministry. But I think what was striking to me was after the Belt and Road was first announced, the the two speeches that Xi Jinping gave in in, in Kazakhstan and in Jakarta in 2013, I recall going around China in the sort of year after that, and pretty much every single institution I would visit had a Belt and Road center of some sort or another, because everyone saw that this was the kind of the leader's big idea and big vision. And everyone wanted to be associated with it and wanted to link up with it. Since then, a lot of these have sort of wilted away, but actually a lot of them sort of continued uh, because the whole concept has continued. And it's not so much uh, a project or a program or strategy, it's really a vision and an idea. And so everyone you know, within the Chinese systems needs to have a kind of answer to that idea. But it was really striking to me because every, you know, every think tank, every university, every company I would visit had a kind of Belt and Road center within it that was focused on what their role in the Belt and Road was, or what they could kind of bring to this party. In many ways, it's the key foreign policy or the signature foreign policy of Xi Jinping. And it's one of the interesting contrasts with, say, the Europe and the United States, because one of the challenges that the, that the Europeans and Americans are having out in the world now today is what do they stand for? What is the vision for U.S. foreign policy? What is the vision for European foreign policy? That has not been an easy question to answer. And the Belt and Road, if nothing else, as Rafael has just pointed out, is a vision. It, it is something that people then can architect around. And so in that sense, it's been quite helpful. Again, outside of China, people see it in very menacing, threatening terms. Inside of China, people see it as a rallying point. Companies, ministries, banks. And in terms of building connectivity, building infrastructure, providing opportunities for Chinese companies to expand their markets overseas, providing employment opportunities, and at the same time, connecting China with mostly in the global south. But let's not forget, a number of European countries, particularly Eastern European countries and Italy, are also members of the BRI. So it does have an impact in Europe as well. It's interesting that you talk about this overarching vision and the fact that there are many projects within that, which I'm sure could be fertile ground for competing interpretations of what exactly the BRI is, which we'll come and talk a bit more about that later on. But Eric, what does China, as in Xi Jinping, what is the central idea and the purpose behind it? And do you think that that lines up with reality? I think this, if, you, if you had to put one central idea, I would say connectivity. And I think that is one of the key words here that that really, again, it, it's a risky space that we're in. And I'm sure Raffaello will be able to kind of add more to this. But y- y- boiling this down to one or two concepts is very difficult because, again, there are security aspects to it. There are trade aspects to it. There are communications, so many different elements to it. It's a little bit like those hall of mirrors where you look one way and it's one way, one thing, and then you look another way and something totally different. But one of the hallmarks is is connectivity, connectivity through trade, communications, all of these different aspects of it. And that's what the Chinese seem to prize most when they are engaging in BRI projects. Let me just give you a, a hypothetical aspect of, you know, vision for this. There's a tea farmer in Western Kenya who gets an order from a, a Kazakh buyer. 
the Kazakh buyer goes on to a Chinese website that then sends a message up to through a Chinese satellite onto a Chinese made phone in Western Kenya for an order of tea. He uses a cryptocurrency backed by a, you know, a Chinese e-currency to put into a Chinese escrow account. The tea is then loaded up onto a truck. It gets a barcode, which is then tracked by the Beidou navigation system. The truck then takes it on a Chinese-built road to the Standard Gauge Railway in Naivasha in central Kenya in the Rift Valley, which then goes on a Chinese-built railway all the way down to the port of Mombasa, being tracked again all the way through the Beidou satellite system. The money, of course, is still sitting in a Chinese escrow account. The T then gets loaded onto a Costco freighter ship, which is the Chinese freighter ship. It then goes over, you know, across the Indian Ocean all the way to, to Kazakhstan and up through, you know, the, the, the different point, points of travel. Again, a lot of Chinese built infrastructure along the way. And here's what's very interesting. That team never went to China. So a lot of people make the mistake in thinking that this is a traditional trade network where everything, you know, raw materials come from the global south to China, manufactured goods go back out again. What happened here with this tea transaction is that China was at the center of every single aspect of it, but it never went to China itself. And that's what I think is really central to the Belt and Road. It's about connectivity in a Sinocentric world, which nothing, no part of that transaction touched the SWIFT system, did not touch the GPS or the Galileo navigation systems, didn't touch any of the Western systems that have been built. These are parallel systems that are up and operational today. So this is not some vision for the future, the next five, 10 years, what if? That T transaction that I kind of spelled out could happen today. That's really interesting. And Raffaello then, can you tell us a little bit more about this model for economic development? What does a typical investment look like? What kind of development projects are happening at the moment? Well, I think there's lots of different lots of different kinds, you know what I mean? And so I think it's, it's difficult to pinpoint one specific one and say, well, this is the only, this is the kind of one that you'd find. I think the way in some ways I'd articulate it is that in some ways BRI is China's way of expressing its foreign policy. And the fundament of it is, as Eric says, about connectivity. It's about trade. It's about all making money together. And so essentially China is saying, let's our foreign policy to the world be. Let's all just make money together. And I think underlying that, there's an idea that China sees that thinks has worked at home, which is basically, if we can make everyone rich and prosperous, then you will get stability. And China's seen that model work quite successfully at home. And so essentially, that's the kind of, I think, idea that sort of underpins a lot of these projects that they do going out. So if we take, you know, for example, uh, we look at Pakistan, right, which is a country which is uh, quite a focus in some ways of BRI, because they had a, they've had a very big sort of uh, set of projects there that have all been grouped under a specific name called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC, uh, which is you know, at its core, a web of different projects, everything from building roads up and down Pakistan, uh, to refurbishing old roads, to building rail routes, to building power stations. Pakistan's a country that has a real problem with electricity generation. And so there's a huge amount of coal-fired power plants and other power plants that Chinese companies are building using Chinese uh, loans often uh, to build these projects in, in Pakistan in particular. But it's also doing uh, things like building a new subway system for Lahore. It's also about, you know, connecting up China directly to Pakistan and building new pipelines. Uh, but it's also just about improving Pakistan's own infrastructure to connect our parts of Pakistan that, you know, as Eric points out, don't necessarily have to touch on China at all. But all of that is grouped together and is called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. 
it's not really one specific corridor going from A to B. It's basically a whole web of activity that's often funded by Chinese institutions or supported in part by Chinese institutions, often built by Chinese companies, though often they have subcontractors on the ground that might be locals. But basically, it's sort of it's a whole web of activity involving Chinese actors in Pakistan. And everything under that is grouped together and called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. I'm really glad you raised Pakistan as well, because both Pakistan and Afghanistan are allies and they're so-called all-weather friends of China. I wonder, has this caused problems? Are there, is there much opposition to China's initiatives in Asia? And what does that really mean for Western security interests in the region? Um, I think it varies, frankly, from places to places. I mean, I think if you go, uh, the sort of the, the most simple maybe summary I would offer is that broadly speaking, when you look at a government level, you'll find in most countries, there's kind of a sense of willingness to engage with BRI or find ways of doing stuff with the Chinese through the Belt Road Initiative. But then when you go down on the ground and you look at the projects themselves, in some cases, you find that there's problems. Um, and there's problems in terms of the Chinese company maybe not paying its workers as they feel they should be, people on the ground feeling that they're not getting a benefit or you know, losing their land or losing their uh, home or something because the Chinese project sort of bulldozing through it. But it's not always clear how much the Chinese company is to blame for that or how much the local authorities haven't sort of got around to you know, giving people the compensation that, that's expected or telling them or bringing them into the project. So there is often resistance on the ground on specific projects. But often at a government-to-government level, it's actually quite positive. But I simplify because, I mean, I've traveled around parts of Pakistan, parts of Tajikistan, even parts of Afghanistan, where I found people who are actually quite positive (laughs) on the projects that are ultimately delivered because they say, well, you know, we didn't used to have a road there, and now we have a road there. And yes, okay, you know, we we worry a little bit about what deal the government might have done to get the funding to do this project that the Chinese have delivered. But at the same time, we now have a road, which gets us quicker from point A to point B. So you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed story, frankly. And I don't think there's a kind of a universal sense of, you know, pro or against. But if I was to broadly summarize, I'd say you often find at a senior government level, they like the fact that someone's coming and pouring a lot of money and building infrastructure in their country. Um, and then it's the people who then get, who ultimately get impacted by this project who get sometimes positive and sometimes negative feeling. China's allies in these regions often suggest that the state is taking a more holistic or constructive interest in their economic development rather than merely a military one. Could you argue that that's simply domination by different means, though? Do you think the BRI is some kind of method of creating a China-led block against Western powers in Asia? Well, I think if, if that's the attempt, um, I'm not sure it's always working because you know we don't necessarily see countries always totally uh, uh, lining up in support of uh, Chinese interests or, or, or Chinese ideals. So, you know, I think certainly there's a degree to which Chinese investment does influence uh, how some countries will look at engaging with China and then how they might engage with the West. Um, I think that's certainly true in some cases. But I also think that, you know, in a lot of examples, and I think in parts of Europe is, is the best place to look for this, is you'll find countries that have done a lot of stuff on the kind of BRI, but at the same time aren't uh, aren't always very positive towards China or supportive of China and actually lean more in a sort of American direction. And between 2001 and 2010, the CEIIB loaned around £60 billion to sub-Saharan Africa. That was compared to just £12.5 billion from the World Bank. How are Western democracies responding to these different initiatives then? In Africa, the West has not come up with a very effective response at all. 
you know, and so when it comes to infrastructure, the kinds of things that Africans need right now is just closing this hundred to $120 billion a year infrastructure deficit right now. And so we're starting to see the first inklings of a response through Global Gateway and the Build Back Better World initiative. But we're coming up on the one year anniversary since the G7 announcement on Build Back Better World and nothing to show. And, and one has to wonder if European taxpayers really have the stomach to compete in places like South America, in Africa and South Asia to spend tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money at times when that's really not a very popular uh, policy in many parts of Europe. And then let's take into account the fact that now Eastern Europe and Ukraine in particular are going to have enormous needs in rebuilding in the future whenever the war comes to an end. And one has to wonder then if money is going to be diverted to Ukraine away from places like Africa, because at the end of the day, what gave the opening for the BRI in many parts of the world was the fact that after the Cold War, the U.S. and Europe disengaged from many parts of the global south. And this gave the opening for China to really be, uh, you know, to, to, to spread their wings in places like Africa and to find really receptive audiences in prime ministers and presidential palaces across the continent because the U.S. and Europe simply weren't there. They're not engaged. For most of U.S. and European foreign policy, Africa is still a place of aid and charity. It is not a place to do business. And the Chinese came in and said, we don't do charity. That's not our thing. We're here to do business. We're here to extend loans. We're here to build infrastructure, but we're not here to give you a lot of free money. And that was a very, very different relationship. And when you listen to African young people, and this came up last year in the Franco-African summit in Montpellier, when Emmanuel Macron brought on stage a number of young African civil society actors, and they just ripped into him saying, we are tired of the patronizing, we are tired of the aid, we are tired of the dependency. And that was the message they told to the Chinese. And the Chinese said, great, you know what, that's what we do. So let's roll. Now, you mentioned that Chinese banks have funded these various development projects in Africa, from major gas pipelines to high-speed rail and infrastructure. China now controls 15 of the Democratic Republic of Congo's 19 cobalt mines, and it also dominates the so-called lithium triangle in South America. So why is China looking to Africa and South America for these minerals? Why do they matter so much? Well, those minerals matter right now specifically for the electric vehicle batteries that that we all depend on now for for transportation. And so and also it goes into lots of other electronics. And the Chinese have been very very aggressive in in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo to to really, you know, sew up a big part of the the whole vertical supply chain. So from the mining to the processing that's that they were they had a lot of foresight earlier on. And let's remember that Western companies sold a lot of their assets. So Freepak, Freeport McMoran and other companies sold these assets to Chinese companies. So this was not necessarily a BRI thing. So very important to differentiate just because it's Chinese doesn't make it BRI. What we're seeing in the in the in the DRC in the cobalt sector is unrelated to BRI. So that now the roads that it uses and the the ports and things like that that ship the cobalt, that's part of BRI. But the actual buying up of the assets to in the mines and running of the mines are very different. Very important to recognize that other than the cobalt in the DRC, most of what China buys from Africa, it can buy pretty much anywhere else along the BRI. So economically speaking, Africa is actually not that important to China. When you compare the trade volumes that China does with Africa compared to here in Southeast Asia, it's a tiny fraction. So last year, China did $254 billion of trade with Africa, but they did $1.2 trillion with Southeast Asia. 
And overall, China did 6.05 trillion. So 254 billion out of 6 trillion, not that important. So from an economic point of view, Africa is becoming, you know, it's marginal, except for the strategic minerals like uh, cobalt and lithium. Those are very, very important. And there's now a big rush around the world to try and lock up as much of that supply as possible because we're running into acute shortages of them. And China manufactures around 42% of all electric vehicles internationally. And it's this same cobalt that's being mined in the Congo that will be used in the British Vault Battery Gigafactory in Newcastle in the UK. So how important are these minerals for the environment and for electrification? Do you think that we can actually get sustainably sourced cobalt for these factories? Probably not. And so the, about 60% of the world's cobalt comes from the DRC. About 80% of the world's processed cobalt comes from China. That is a security dynamic that many Western countries and Asian manufacturers in Japan and South Korea also feel very, very uncomfortable about. Uh, however, let's not get too focused on cobalt simply because there's a lot of innovation in China and elsewhere on the post-cobalt future. In fact, Elon Musk is uh, putting uh, lithium-ion batteries that have no cobalt in them in some of the Model 3s in China. So we can see a future in 10 years that doesn't use cobalt. But for the foreseeable future, cobalt is going to be a part of the, the EV ecosystem. It's extraordinarily painful to watch how the mining process works. Again, not only the fault of the Chinese, but because really the DRC is a failed state in many respects. It has no functioning government in many of the southern uh, cobalt zones where they enforce worker rights, environmental protection, and all these different things. It is, is really a free-for-all in many respects. And so we are all complicit in this when we consume phones and cars that use this kind of cobalt. It's just no, no way to get around it. But that is just the reality of where it is right now, that the DRC is the Saudi Arabia of cobalt. And there is cobalt in other countries, but just nowhere near the volumes that they have in the Congo. And I'm glad you bring up security interests. I remember about a year ago, I talked to Dr. Dwayne Ryan Menezes for the Bunker Panel Show after there were mass protests against mineral mining in Greenland. And I remember he suggested that these so-called rare earths are as important today as oil was in the 19th century. Do you think that these minerals and China's vertical dominance of them will affect Western economic and security interests and how? Well, China in 2015 showed that it is willing to weaponize its supply chains when it got into a dispute with Japan and and used Japan's uh, dependence on Chinese rare earths to and it cut them off. So we do have a precedent for the fact that China will weaponize its supply chains if it if it feels that it needs to and it has to. There is precedent for that. So I think that would give a policymaker in other countries some reason to be concerned. And they are concerned about not being dependent on China for any particular strategic mineral. Now we have another problem, which is beyond just the security aspect of it all. But what we're seeing today right now is that when you're dependent on China and Chinese ports aren't functioning and Chinese factories aren't working because of the lockdowns, well, that too is not good. So I think what this is really conveyed to people is, and to companies and policymakers, is that being dependent on any single country for any single resource is not a good idea. So there's a lot of move now to diversify sourcing of these strategic minerals as much as possible. Now, Rafaela, back in February, my fellow presenter Arthur Snell spoke to Joanna Chu about how Western governments have marketed Chinese investment to their voters. So where is China investing in Europe at the moment? China is uh, 
pretty big investor in lots of parts of Europe. It's consistently invested a lot in the United Kingdom, actually, and also invested quite a bit into um, into Germany um, and in parts of continental Europe. But the UK has always been quite an outsized uh, source of uh, outside location for a Chinese investment. And I noticed it's bankrolled a billion dollar road building project in Montenegro, but budget constraints have left the Balkan country deeply indebted and with a literal road to nowhere on their hands. Do you think these smaller states have much choice when it comes to pursuing economic development, but to depend on China, especially when we see the comparative lack of investment perhaps by other Western governments? Well, I think this is a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer, frankly, because I think it's not it's not really true. The, U- the European Union invests a massive amount in the Balkans, and it has for a very long time. Even if you look at Serbia, a country which you know is seen as sort of China and Russia's stooge in the middle of Europe, you know, it's a country that takes a huge amount of money from the European Union, has received and continues to receive a lot of European Union aid. This specific project in Montenegro was one that the Montenegrins had tried to sell to lots of other people before the Chinese had offered to do it. And in fact, the European Investment Bank, I think, had looked at it and done a number of feasibility studies and basically said, this isn't worth it. You know, it's not going to serve any purpose for you. It's not going to bring you a benefit and it's going to saddle you with a lot of debt. But the Montenegrins are very, very keen to build it anyway and just were basically looking for someone to come and do it for them. And the Chinese offered themselves um, as the sort of uh, as, as the potential, you know, funders and then uh, sending their uh, companies to actually come and build the project. So. I think what's, what bothers me a lot about the discourse around some of these issues and the investment projects in particular is we really take out the agency of the host countries. You know, these countries are making a decision here, uh, you know, and they're making it now. In some cases, there's corruption behind it. In some cases, you know, you've got a very poor country that's not getting investment for anywhere else. But often there's a reason it's not getting the investment for anywhere else. You know, often that money is being offered by, you know, international institutions like the IMF or, you know, uh, uh, you know, AIDS uh, institutions in Western countries like the UNES or, or Western European countries. But, you know, the, the criteria that they are offering and requiring that the country meets is something that the country doesn't want to do. Or maybe the project is one that, you know, the, com- the country wants, but when a feasibility study is done, the conclusion is, well, actually, it's not really worth it, but the, com- the country still wants it. Now, that country is allowed to have agency and is allowed to have a choice and decide that it still wants to go ahead with something that everyone's telling it shouldn't do if it can secure the loans. But, you know, the problem is that it does then saddle that country with a large debt that they are carrying. But I think we shouldn't take away, you know, I, th- I don't think we can blame this all on the Chinese. There is a certain country that has made a choice here to do that. The Chinese haven't sort of forced them to do that. So, you know, I think that we do need to walk away, a li- walk back a little bit some of these narratives that say, oh, these countries are just being sort of, you know, offered these loans with a sort of gun to their heads to sign the contracts. That's not really how it happens. Often they make a choice that they want to do this project and will take whatever money is available. And if it's a Chinese one, they'll do that um, without really thinking through what the consequences of that might be. And Coming off that then, neo-colonial thinkers like Walter Rodney and Kahinde Andrews, who we've spoken to on the podcast before, have suggested that China has simply adapted the European colonial model in order to underdevelop Africa, seeking economic control over its natural resources instead of political control over its peoples and monies. Are they, are they right? Is China breeding a kind of economic dependency on itself that is dependent on resource and, and popular exploitation? That's just, I mean, so ridiculous. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I mean, it's just pathetic that that actually passes as serious discourse. And clearly, I'm not familiar with with the writer, but clearly, the whoever said that has no concept of what the Chinese are doing in Africa. Because one of the things that you'll see when you actually look at the data 
is that China's trade with Africa and China's investments with Africa are highly distorted. That 62% of all the trade that China does with Africa comes from just uh, five countries. Okay, five countries, 10 countries at whole represent the whole of it. So, you know, to say that 44 other countries are somehow under the, the, the vice of China is, is ridiculous. This is a continent of 54, 55 countries, 1.2 billion people. China is not even the largest investor. And here's what's ridiculous about this is while we focus on these neocolonial narratives about the Chinese, meantime, you, you've got, you know, the European powers are still very, very dominant. Now, please, I'm not saying any of this to defend the Chinese whatsoever. They do a lot of egregious things in Africa, particularly when it comes to the environment, again, the lack of transparency. And, the, you know, there's a number of egregious things. But to assign this kind of thinking to it is just, it's just so misleading. And, and it just doesn't look at the facts as they are. And again, as I've said point over and over again on my podcast, and you know, in our writing, China looks at Africa now in far more political terms than it does in economic terms. And what that writer reveals is, again, an old thinking of how you look at Africa is that the only thing that it's good for is the timber, mineral and oil that comes from it. When, in fact, again, China, you know, does three times as much trade with South America than it does with with Africa. It does, you know, six to seven times more trade with Southeast Asia than it does with Africa. Africa's importance to China is not in the economic realm or even in the resource realm. It's in the fact that it has 54 votes at the United Nations. It is the fact that it supports China's positions on Xinjiang, on human rights, on Hong Kong, over and over and over again. Right now with the Ukraine uh, conflict, about half of African countries have more or less aligned with the Chinese position at the United Nations. These political dimensions to the relationship now are far more important than the economic ones. So who, so I really encourage your listeners just to push away from those old colonial narratives because they just don't apply to China in the 21st century in a place like Africa. So Rafaela, what is the future of the BRI? What are the sort of big projects that we should be keeping an eye out for here? I mean, I think you know, the BRI is Xi Jinping's foreign policy concept. It's his foreign policy idea. It's his big contribution to the kind of Chinese canon of thinking. And it's been codified in the sort of constitution of the Chinese Communist Party. So the BRI is not going to go away. This is going to continue to be China's, you know, outward expression. You know, it's China going global is very much what BRI in some ways is. So I think, you know, it, it's not going to go away anytime soon. If we're going to look at specific projects, um, I think that the, the places to really uh, continue to focus on, frankly, I think is, is Asia, uh, really. And it's the neighboring countries uh, to China, where I think you'll see big projects going forwards that will be real game changers on the ground. You know, there will be pieces of infrastructure that will really change people's lives in a material way um, that will, you know, be very positive. You know, if I, if I think of the parts of Central Asia where they've built tunnels across countries that are incredible, you know, Tajikistan's a country, 93% mountainous. You know, some of the tunnels they've built there have literally connected parts of the country that have never really been able to be connected before. Um, you know, and that's transformative. And, you know, if you look at parts of, of countries like Myanmar, which are, you know, trying to attract a lot of Chinese investment as well, and has a lot of BRI stuff, or you look at Pakistan, you know, if Pakistan is really able to get the electricity generation that is meant to come from all the power stations that will be built, that will be transformative. You know, you will see Pakistan will not be a country of rolling blackouts anymore. And that will be transformative to people's lives. And I think those are the things that are really going to have a real impact in terms of these countries, in terms of people on the ground, and also, frankly, in terms of Chinese relations with them. Because, you know, these countries will remember that, you know, the Chinese are the ones who 
built those pieces of infrastructure that really had a kind of transformative effect on our nation. So I think if you want to look out, I would look out at China's neighboring countries um, across Southeast Asia and South Asia and in Central Asia first and foremost, because I think that's where you're going to see a really game-changing kind of BRI stuff. Um, looking over to parts of Africa, I think the example that Eric uh, pointed out before of, you know, this tea, this uh, fictional or maybe not fictional, no fictional. <laughs> tea transactional <laughs> uh, from Kenya uh, to Kazakhstan, you know, I think that's a, it's a really good example to show that this kind of this web of connectivity that China is building all over the world will create an interesting parallel system. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think there are still some hiccups in, in a lot of it, and I think there are smoother ways to go. But I think you are starting to see that really emerge, and that's going to really create an interesting alternative web of kind of connectivity around the world to the one that I think we're traditionally used to. Fantastic. Raffaello, Eric, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or see Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the Bunker. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Daily was presented by Jelena Sofronievich. The producers were Elena Ganatra, Jacob Archbold, and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>